This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Uh, right now, we wanted to get down to some legalities, and uh, that has to do with Joseph Newberger joining us to explain all. He's Global News Radio's legal analyst. Joseph, how are you doing this afternoon? Great, John. How are you? Likewise, fine. But, you know, I'm bewildered in a couple of cases. Uh, one I'll cite where there was a, a sexual assault case that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, at the Court of Appeal level, an individual, 20 years uh, of age, uh, allegedly, I guess, had uh, assaulted a 15-year-old, and uh, she became pregnant. And uh, in this instant, that was cited as validation that she had been assaulted, but uh, his defense lawyer tried to uh, bring in her sexual history. And uh, Canada's rape shield law uh, doesn't, I guess, uh, at first blush, we uh, understand, doesn't allow for that. But the Court of Appeals said that would be okay to do. But the Supreme Court said, uh, uh-uh. And uh, they upheld this guy's conviction. Did the Supremes get it right? Um, they made some comments which would support uh, in the future, in this type of case, that the complainant could be asked about sexual history, but they uh, indicated in this case it would not make uh, or would not have made a difference in the outcome of the decision, although there is a strong dissent in the Supreme Court, and I think they did, in my opinion, with all due respect, uh, err on this one, because what's interesting is uh, centered to the Crown's case was that the complainant became uh, pregnant and that she was a virgin at the time. So that was the Crown's introduction of evidence in order to support the complainant's credibility. And the um, the uh, embryo was destroyed, and so there was no ability to determine through DNA paternity. So all the defense had available was to uh, ask the judge to allow to cross-examine the complainant about uh, what she knew about being a virgin, and if she was a virgin, and then also ask about... Um, if there were other individuals that she was having sexual relations with that could be uh, the father of the of the baby. Um, and the court uh, decided, that, and the Court of Appeals said he should have been allowed to ask that and uh, overturn the conviction. But as you noted, the Supreme Court of Canada said, nope, and restored the conviction. And I suspect why they did was that there was probably on the whole of the record enough evidence to establish which they thought was a, a conviction, uh, regardless of the problems with uh, what the judge ruled at trial. Right, and uh, there was, as you cite, no DNA to corroborate one way or the other. Yeah, uh, yeah. Here's another but, story. I'm sorry. Sorry, but but I, I you know I just want to emphasize this is one of those cases where you know this type of an error on the part of of, of the judge should really be something that I thought the Supreme Court of Canada should have ruled in favor of for the accused, as I think you, you sort of noted. So we'll see what happens next time around if something like this happens again. Well, uh, again, upholding uh, the inviolability of the rape shield law. Yeah. Let me ask you another uh, story surrounding an embryo uh, where a couple uh, wanted to have children and they had some uh, embryos, I guess, uh, well, they had the uh, genetic material donated uh, from male and female and implanted through uh, IVF. And uh, in one case, I guess one of the embryos was frozen. Uh, a child was born. Uh, then they split. And uh, then the woman wanted uh, a second child or wanted the embryo. And uh, the idea that, you know, her partner at the time had consented to, uh, I guess, going about uh, reproduction along these lines. Since splitting, uh, he withdrew his consent. And that became contentious because, uh, well, 
how the lawyers got involved and made cases about contract law and uh, so on and so forth. Maybe you can help me through this. I mean, because uh, the guy, I guess, had his consent upheld. And why is that? Yeah, this is very interesting case. So uh, at first hearing, the judge uh, squarely relied on the way the lawyers had pleaded the case, and they they pleaded it in contract law because I guess with the fertility clinic, there's a contract, and then based on that contract, uh, the wife uh, would be able to make decisions about the embryo, uh, even if there was a separation and a divorce. But on appeal, one of the Court of Appeal judges framed it differently, even though the lawyers did not frame their argument appropriately, and um, she had regard to the Assisted Human Reproduction Act which prohibits the use of reproductive material uh, and in vitro embryos without consent. So in essence, what the Court of Appeals said is that you cannot uh, contract yourself out of consent because that may change over time and that the um, contributor of the sperm for the embryo would have a right over time to change uh, his mind with respect to consent and that there's nothing as, you know, as basic as family planning and, you know, creating you know, life, and so uh, they, uh, the Court of Appeal, uh, came on the side of the uh, the Act, which is the Assisted Human Reproduction Act, and and determined that consent is not fixed in property or contract law, but is uh, something that can be fluid over time. In other words, uh, having split, the guy no longer consented to uh, having this child brought into the world or the embryo uh, come to fruition, and he withdrew his consent, and the court. Uh, held for him. That's an interesting development as well, because a lower court uh, decided otherwise and said it was basically a contract that they had entered into. Exactly. And it is a very interesting decision. And, and they went on further to say that, you know, if you don't have that consent, in essence, it would amount to a criminal offense using the embryo um, and implanting it uh, to, to create a baby. So it was a very interesting decision. And I think it's, you know, a sign of the times that we have to have respect for these acts and how families change and, and people's um, opinion about what should happen with these embryos will change over time. It's interesting how legal minds actually uh, differ on rulings or uh, in how they assess or judge these cases, uh, even at that level. Joseph Newberger is with us, a fine legal mind, Global News Radio's <laughs> legal analyst. So here's one that you've really got to rack your brain on. Uh, so you've got two kids playing in uh, a playground, and the 10-year-old hits the 9-year-old in the face with a ball, uh, concusses the kid, there are abrasions, and so... Uh, I guess the kid who was hit, the family, took the 10-year-old to court, and uh, there was a charge of assault here, but the prosecutor decided to drop it earlier, I think, today or yesterday, I mean, but did suggest that the charge was certainly sustainable. Uh, So, I mean, have we gotten to a point where, you know, even in dodgeball or anything else like that, that could be construed as an assault? Yeah, it's only in the United States. Uh, Like, I mean, these things are really quite silly. So in Canada no child under 12 years of age could ever be charged. And in this case, this was during a game on school grounds, whatever they call the United States, called tips, where they're literally, point of the game is to throw it at each other before you touch the ground. And the allegation was that at the end of the game, the the 10-year-old threw the ball at the 9-year-old, and unfortunately the 9-year-old got injured. So, I mean, you know, I'm just a little astonished at this because this dodgeball, as you said, goes on all the time. There's dodgeball tournaments, there's dodgeball teams in schools, and so... You know, we can't logically extend this, that if somebody throws a ball after the game is over and hits another child, that it's going to be an assault because there's some voluntary assumption of risk at this, even though these are like nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds. So it's quite silly. And I think the prosecutor at least aptly noted that 
you know, all families love their children and, and hope for the best for them. And there has to be a healthier way of dealing with this than prosecuting a 10-year-old for aggravated assault. I mean, really quite astonishing to me, but well, I guess you know, it's just, they arrived at the right decision. Right. But it seems to me it's also symptomatic of a, an overly litigious society, isn't it? You're absolutely right. I mean, the United States, it's so litigious. There's so many different statutes and penal codes and everything. I mean, just it's just there's just so much. You're absolutely right. They're overly litigious in the United States. And, and frankly, in Canada, we're much more conservative when it comes to these things. Fair enough. Duly noted. Joseph, it's always great to get your explanations. I feel better for it, uh, having gained some knowledge here this afternoon. Thanks so much. That's very kind of you, John. Have a great show. All right. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio's legal analyst. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.